the Love Your Story podcast. We all die, we all pay taxes, and another thing we all have in common on this crazy ride called life is that we all need to heal. Why is this something we all do? Well, because in this rough and tumble life, we all get hurt. We all have to heal from things, mild to wild, the broken heart, the deep disappointments, the full-out traumas. As I have looked over the past episodes of the Love Your Story podcast, and we are well over 250 now, no matter the episode, over 90% of them involved discussions about the path of healing. Whether the stories shared are about a miscarriage, an injury, a rape, a divorce, an eating disorder, the death of a loved one, etc., etc., the thing they all have in common is that healing is part of the process if forward progression is to be made. As is obvious by the name of the show, we are all about coming to love our own personal life story. Oftentimes, the thing that stands between us and a full acceptance and love of our own story are the broken times, the shameful times, the things we see as failures, quote unquote, the things that we need to heal from. So I'm glad you've joined me today for some voices of healing as past guests share what this looked like for them. Let's shine a light on the healing journey and see what we can learn because we all have things to heal from. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. this episode, I want to start on a humble note. The things we heal from are deeply personal, and I'm not suggesting that I know how everyone should heal. Just do this or that, and it'll all be well. If I've learned anything from listening to people's stories, it's that healing is different for everyone. It's deeply personal. So what I share today are quips from others' journeys and a few personal ideas about things that seem to consistently work for people as well as myself. See what hits home for you. And if you can take one thing that will shine a light forward on your healing journey or someone you love's healing journey, then we are getting it right. Hopefully you'll find a handful, but even just one that helps you take a step forward is a big deal. My first heartbreak was in high school. My first love was my high school boyfriend, and we were crazy in love. (laughs) We shared a locker. We snuck out of our windows at night to be together. We both played percussion, so we got up early every morning before school and practiced and stayed late after school and practiced. And of course, we spent every minute we could together. We dated for years and One summer, we even had a fake wedding ceremony. I've never admitted this to anyone. (laughs) Next to a stream up the canyon, we had a teddy bear that I named after him, and it symbolized our future kids. I have boxes of letters and notes from him. I know 
to say it out loud is to shine a light on this beautiful immaturity. And at the same time, I think it also shines a light on the depth of a young, unharmed heart, how, how deep it can go and feel. Until one Friday night, I found him drunk, making out with the girl who was supposed to be my best friend at a party that they had lied to me about being there. So we had a couple of these bouts over the next years before I reached 19 years old. And finally, my heart was too broken to ever be put back together by him again. I don't have a great healing story to tell you unless you count 25 years later when I finally had to heal from a life of heartbreaks. I had to reframe. I had to let go. His story, my story with him was just the beginning of a whole stream of messy, broken love stories with all the deep pains and the disappointments, all the betrayals, all the bad choices, all the disillusionment. I had three marriages, three divorces, a handful of serious boyfriends that I had chosen not to stay with. There was a lot of relationship healing for me. At any given time, we can be on this path to healing. It is not just something that we do once and everything is okay. Every time you get cut or a broken bone, you have to heal all over again. And of course, it's the same mentally and emotionally and psychologically. We need to heal whenever we experience hurt. So we are all off and on the path to healing continually. As I've gone back and listened to the healing stories of past guests, and as I consider my own healing story, I mentioned that it really struck me how complex healing is. It's not the exact same for everyone, and there are so many possible steps, but I came up with eight that popped up over and over. Let me just go through those really quickly. The first one is allow for the pain. Let it be there. Let it flow through you. Resistance just makes it suffering. Number two is give yourself time. Don't demand that you be back at full capacity immediately. You know, I notice that I always expect myself to deal with things and get back to business, accomplish, accomplish, no time for slouching. But we need to be kind and understanding with ourselves and our own healing journey. The third one is find hope. For many, Christ provides this hope for a better tomorrow, hope for healing and hope for overcoming, sometimes hope for justice, hope for light, for less dark. Hope is crucial to survival. It's a really big part of getting through anything. The fourth one was asking for help and support. The fifth one was being gracious with yourself, allowing for self-care and allowing for self-forgiveness when it was needed. The sixth was looking for the positive. That positive mental outlook makes all the difference when somebody could shift from an injury or a a betrayal and be able to shift into looking at things positively, their healing journey changed considerably. And we'll we'll see some of that um, further on. Um, The seventh was finding meaningful lessons that you can take away from the things that you've experienced. The eighth was accepting your story, and in some cases, telling your story, you know, releasing any shame by not allowing a dark story to fester. Shameful things feel more shameful when they're kept in the dark. And the last one was forgiving 
and letting go. Ijoma Umabinyo is a, and I probably just slaughtered her name, I apologize, but she's a Nigerian poet, and she's considered one of sub-Saharan Africa's best modern poets. And she said in her TEDx talk, quote, we have a way of glorifying survival, but not the process of survival, unquote. Today, we are talking about the process of survival, How do we heal? What does the struggle of that process look like? So this is a longer episode, but it's longer and there's so many good things in it. So hang in there. Ijoma's list of healing, she included only three things. I I listed off eight that I had seen, but she includes three things. So I want to give this in comparison. Let me quote her. She says, there are, quote, there are three routes to healing. One, you let the pain visit. Two, you must allow it to teach you. And three, you must not allow it to overstay, unquote. So let's start with mine and Ijoma's first point, which was allow the pain to be there. Stop the resistance. It must be acknowledged that when pain comes, it comes whether we allow it to or not. None of us choose pain on purpose. In fact, I dare say we do all that we can to avoid pain. Some people spend their entire life in pain avoidance. All of us, maybe. But I believe what she is talking about is the idea of resistance and allowance. The equation, which you've all heard, pain plus resistance equals suffering. It's well-documented. Acceptance is the antidote to resistance. Acceptance of that pain is the antidote to resistance. And when you don't add the resistance, you don't get the same level of suffering. Haruki Murakami said, quote, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. So what are we accepting? We are accepting that something hurtful has happened to us, and we are accepting that we feel pain about it. We are letting ourselves feel that pain. We sit with it. We can picture it flowing through us rather than making a home in us. That's what I try to do. I try to open up my energy and picture the pain, just letting it sit and letting it flow out. I'm sure this is a little different for everybody, but we can practice letting it be there, letting yourself have your emotions. It's okay to have those emotions. If we spend a lot of energy trying to push it away, We are, by that very attempt, keeping it in our focus and keeping it in our energy, and thus we are increasing the suffering. It is a well-documented fact that acceptance of what was, what happened to us, is part of the healing process. We must come to accept our story, to stop resisting what is or what has been. We allow ourselves to feel the hurt instead of feeling shame for hurting or fear for hurting or frustration for hurting. We just allow that it hurts and we let it be what it is. In episode 220, I spoke with Margaret Maloney, author of Death with a Little D. And in this discussion, we are talking about the importance of acceptance of life as it changes and when it doesn't meet our expectations. 
So she shares a tip for acceptance. Listen in. The step two to good improv, you said, is yes and. And I think that this is a skill that would be great to end with here because because it's an actual technique that we can take with us when something hits us and we don't know, you know, we're not sure where to go from here. How do we, how do we improv our life forward? Talk to me about yes. And. Well, I think that so often as human beings, when things come our way that we um, thought we don't want, or we thought we didn't want, or we didn't plan for, or we're a little intimidated by, we often, we go to a place of no, right? No. And um, so there's another phrase I'll I'll introduce, which is, you know, pain plus resistance equals suffering. And so when something difficult comes, no, I don't want this. It makes it harder because now I have the pain from whatever the thing is. So, you know, maybe I'll just use the broken down car. Um, In my youth, I had a lot of broken down cars. It was very (laughs) challenging. (laughs) So, you know, there's the pain and the upset of now my car is broken down and I'm by the side of the road and how much is it going to cost? And I don't want this situation and la, 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 la. But if I could just go with like, my car is broken down. Yes, and what am I going to do about it? Less upset about the car. So the sooner that I can get to the place of my car has broken down, I can get to a place of and here's what I'm going to do. And so for any of us, you know, if we can put more yes in our lives, it doesn't mean you aren't going to change something that's difficult, right? So like when the big thing comes, you're going to look at it. Yes. And the, and becomes about what can I do? So, you know, when it's a little D yes. And now I will do something else at lunchtime. Uh, When it's the you know, the big D of you've lost somebody, it's yes, and it's going to, um, yes, I am very sad, and I'm going to be okay. Yes, and, and then as you move forward, it's yes, and I'm going to build, a, I'm going to build a life where I'm still happy. Yes, and I'm going to build a life where I still have purpose. So it's really the sooner that we can accept that something has happened, mm-hmm. the easier it will be for us to move forward with whatever it is. So it doesn't really mean you have to get dumped on and never change difficult things. It just means the sooner you realize, yes, and yes, today I am sick. Yes, and I'm going to call in sick and go back to bed. And then I'll see what happens tomorrow. The next point I want to talk about is finding hope. When I was researching for this episode, I asked the Love Your Story audience what they thought was most important for healing. One of my favorite listeners sent one word to that request, and it was just hope. I was struck by the simplicity of his answer. In my own life, I have been watching some loved ones struggle through some very difficult experiences. And as I have watched the struggle and listened to the various places that they are, on their own personal path of survival and healing, I have noticed that they are experiencing times of hopelessness. And that is a dark place. It's a dark place to watch and a darker place to experience. When there is no hope that you're going to get out from under the dark, no hope for light, no hope for a better day, no hope for release from suffering, This is the space where suicide gets considered. This is the darkness that can crush us. So hope becomes such a deeply important factor to our lives and to healing. 
For me, personally, I think that Christ is the very foundation of hope. How do we talk about healing and about hope without talking about the very essence, the being we believe has brought us these things? Hope for a better day, hope to overcome, hope in letting go of things that have weighed us down? Vaughn E. Worthen, the Associate Director of the Counseling Center at Brigham Young University, shared a few thoughts that I want to share with you. He titled them The Healing Balm of Hope. Now, first in this talk, he shares the words of Jewish psychiatrist Viktor Frankl. He and his father and mother, brother and wife, were all imprisoned in concentration camps during World War II. He and his sister, who who had immigrated before the war, were the only survivors in his family. During three years as a prisoner of war, Frankel witnessed and endured great suffering and cruelty. He noted, quote, it is a peculiarity of man that he can only live by looking to the future, unquote. He warned that, quote, the sudden loss of hope and courage can have a deadly effect. And the prisoner who has lost faith in the future, in his future, was doomed. Unquote. He's talking about those that survived the concentration camps and those who didn't. Hope was crucial to making it through that hard time, to ever being able to heal. And then he points out that hope has been heralded since the earliest recorded histories. The writer of Proverbs states, Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. That's Proverbs 13. And Moroni, a prophet in the Book of Mormon, warned that, quote, if ye have no hope, you must needs be in despair. That's Moroni 10. And then we have an Irish proverb which states, quote, hope is the physician of each misery, unquote. Yes, hope is the physician of each misery. When we have hope that something can be different, hope that things can change, hope for something better. But where do we turn for hope? Referring back to what Brother Worthen was talking about, who refers to the Book of Mormon, he brings up a story of Mormon, another Book of Mormon prophet, and he says, quote, At a time when Mormon's family, religion, and civilization were being destroyed, Mormon declared, quote, I would speak unto you concerning hope. To what source did Mormon look for unfailing hope? He instructs, quote, Ye have hope through the atonement of Christ and the power of the resurrection to be raised unto life eternal, unquote. This is the ultimate of all we might hope for. To possess this hope is to believe that today's pain is only a way station on the road to deliverance. It requires patience with current circumstances for sure. It is also the belief that there will be a coming day when God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. That comes from Revelation 21. D&C, divine hope is sustained not because things always turn out as we wish, but because we know that, quote, all things wherewith we have been afflicted shall work together for our good, unquote and to the glory of the Lord's name. That's in the Doctrine and Covenants. So, I think we're really establishing here the importance of hope, if that wasn't already a given. President Thomas S. Monson, who was a modern prophet of the Latter-day Saint Church, taught, quote, At times there appear to be no light at the end of the tunnel, no dawn to break the night's darkness. 
We feel surrounded by the pain of broken hearts, the disappointment of shattered dreams, and the despair of vanished hopes. If you find yourself in such a situation, I plead with you to turn to our Heavenly Father in faith. He will lift you and guide you. He will not always take your afflictions from you, but He will comfort and lead you with love through whatever storm you face." If there is no hope and darkness prevails, to possess hope is to believe that today's pain will come together for our good at some point. We will learn, we will grow, we will heal, we will find better than where we are today in our darkest hours. I think that sort of just sums up what hope is. This next clip that I want to share with you is from Todd Sylvester's story and how he learned that the human soul is more powerful than addiction after finally beating his own 25-year addiction to drug and alcohol. He then founded the nonprofit anti-drug entity, Sly Dog, Drug Free, That's Me, and this is a sought-after educational program for elementary schools. So his story, and the reason I'm sharing it, is a miracle story of how just a sliver of hope that God might show up. He, he wasn't religious. He had no relationship with God. But he was given this slight hope that God might show up, actually stopped him from committing suicide, and as you hear the story and what happened, it brings about this own healing, personal healing miracle for him. For the entire interview, which has many more wonderful details about his story, you can go to episode 161. But for today, here is a clip. When I started practicing with the team during the summer, I wasn't doing very well. And the coach ended up taking away my scholarship. So why weren't you doing very well? Just because you were partying? Yeah, at this point, I'm drinking every day, smoking every day. I'm, I'm an addict at this point. I really wasn't practicing like I should, like I did before growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, mentally, spiritually, physically, I was a complete mess. And so when he took it away at the time, I was devastated and crushed. But I mean, I see why he did. I mean, I, I probably would have too if I was him. But when that happened, I became this kind of depressed individual, this depressed drunk. I ended up trying out at several other universities and colleges in Utah and a few out of state, got cut from every one of them. And then I ended up living in a home down in Orem with five other guys that we just sat and partied. I was attempting to go to school at uh, Utah Valley Community College at the time. And it hit me, and this was my rock bottom, is when I'm sitting there, I'm wasted, I'm crying, I'm depressed. And the reality slaps me upside the head and says, basketball is no longer a part of my future. All that practicing, all that time and effort, it's gone. You've lost a scholarship. Who does that? And so I planned to end my life. And so I planned my suicide at that moment. I was done. That was my rock bottom. How'd you get out of it? Well, the next day, which was Friday. So that, that was a Thursday. And I can remember it like it was yesterday. But I knew it was a Thursday when I had this plan, I was going to go home and end my life. On Friday, I'm, I'm heading down the freeway, or I'm heading down University Avenue in Provo. And right next to the freeway entrance is Utah Valley Community College. Well, my friends and I would always go sit at the tables there at lunch and just kind of socialize. And, you know, we check out girls and do the things that guys do. And anyway, for whatever reason, I decided to stop there because it was about lunchtime. And I thought, I'm going to go sit there with my friends for a minute. It was kind of almost like my last goodbye to them. Sure. 
And so I go, I go in there instead of heading home at that moment. And I sat down on this big round table where you could sit like 12 people. And I'm sitting there and we did this every day. And there was these two LDS girls that would come and sit with us every single day. I don't know why they did. They actually drove me a little crazy. (laughs) They were always talking, you know, trying to get us to come to church and Honestly, I was actually pretty rude to these girls. I said mean things to them. I teased them about their religion. Anyway, these two particular girls just happened to be sitting right next to me this particular day. And then all my friends were on the other side of the table. And everyone's in their own conversation. And I'm in my head thinking about what I'm going to go home and do. And I overhear these two girls next to me speaking about fasting and prayer. I'd never heard that before. I honestly didn't even know what fasting meant. I had no clue. And I didn't dare say anything with everyone at the table. So I waited and I thought, well, if everyone stands up and goes, I will ask these girls what they were talking about. But so I did. And these girls get up and they start walking away, going to their class or wherever they were going. And I follow them for a minute and I I tap them on the shoulder and I said, hey, were you just talking about fasting and prayer? And and they kind of laughed and chuckled like, yeah, why do you want to know? Because they were used to me just teasing them about their religion. So they thought I was joking. And I said, no, I'm being really serious here. I like, what does that even mean? What is that? So they went on to explain, you know, in our religion, we, we fast once a month. We start with a prayer. We go the whole day without food or water. And as they're explaining it to me, in my head, I'm going, what is the point of this? I thought it was, I honestly thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> Why would you go the whole day without eating? <laughs> and, uh, and I still kind of think that. Yeah, really, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I kind of wonder that too. Uh, <laughs> And then they said, you know, and then we end with a prayer. And then I just asked them, I said, what's the point? Why do you guys do this? And I'll never forget one of the girls pointed right in my face and said, if you want help from God. And when she said that, for whatever reason, that just, it hit me right between the eyes. And I thought, wow. And see, I didn't grow up religious. We didn't go to church. We didn't talk about God. So I never said there wasn't a God, but I didn't say there was one. I was kind of like just middle ground. I didn't know either way. When she said that, I thought, is there a God and would he help me? So instead of going home and ending my life, I decided to stay down there and put that uh, fast and prayer to the test. Wow. And what happened? I stayed down in this house that was this party house that with all my roommates. So Saturday comes now. It's now Saturday morning. And the girl said, start with a prayer. And I knew what prayer was, but I didn't want my roommates to see. So I went into this small little coat closet, got on my knees because I actually have to because there's coats in that closet. And I'm on my knees and I literally just say, God, if you're there, I need help. And that's all I said. I didn't say anything else. And I got up and I made it till about noon, I think, without, you know, eating food or drinking anything. It was the first time since I was 14 that I didn't smoke, pop a pill, have a drink. And I was really angry and actually kind of really upset, just in a bad mood. And even my roommates were like, what's your problem? I didn't tell them. I just said, leave me alone. I don't want to talk. Well, I made it till about noon. The girls said, end with a prayer. So that's exactly what I did. I went back into that same closet and I got on my knees and I said, God, if you're there, I did this fast. I need help. And being naive of this whole thing, I waited and waited for God to do something, to show up and nothing happened. And I actually was a little disappointed because these girls didn't tell me, you know, hey, sometimes prayers take a while to get answered and they get answered in certain ways. And they didn't go through all those details. So I was just naive. You got to understand, I had no clue. I just thought, okay, 
I did this. God's probably going to do something right now, you know, or he's going to show up. <laughs> sure. And nothing happened. And I ended up getting wasted that day. I was really depressed again. I, those thoughts of ending my life kept coming back into my mind. And I wrestled with this for about a month. And then I get a, a random phone call from a friend of mine named Rich Saunders, who I played basketball with at Brighton High School. And he had since obviously graduated from high school. He went on a mission. He was now back. He was married in the temple. And he gives me this random call. I hadn't talked to him since high school. And he said, hey, Todd, where are you at? And I says, I'm down here in Orem. He goes, so am I. He goes, I'd really love to talk to you today. Would you be willing to come over to my apartment? I said, yeah, sure. You know, and at the time, I thought that was a little strange. You know, I was like, because we hadn't talked for a long time. So I head over to his apartment. I get over there. We're sitting down on this couch. And we're just catching up some weather talk stuff. And then all of a sudden, he's, Lori, he starts saying all these nice things about me. You're such a good person, Todd. You're going to help so many people in your life. You're going to, and he kept saying, you're going to help kids over and over again. And it was the most, I mean, if he had said it once, it would have been weird, but he kept <laughs> saying it over and over, which even made it more bizarre. And I finally, I got so uncomfortable with it. I said, hey, whoa, Rich, stop. I go, I don't know why you're saying all this, but you have no idea. My life right now is a total mess. So I'd appreciate it if you'd stop saying all those things. Like, why are you even saying that? And then he goes, Todd, he goes, I didn't go to work today because I had to stay home and share a message with you. And I'm like, what's going on? I go, is everything okay? He's like, no, everything's fine. And I, and I can tell he's nervous. He's sitting there and I can tell he wants to say something, but he's nervous to say it. <laughs> and we're just sitting there in this awkward moment. And then all of a sudden he goes, looks me in the eye and said, Todd, the Lord came to me last night and says, we need you on our side today. And when he had said those words, you know how your mind can rewind back to moments? It went back to the moment when I was on my knees in that closet asking God for help. And when he had said that, my mind rewinded. I felt like, I didn't know it then, but I just describe it as a love of God. I felt it in every cell of my body. And it actually, to be honest with you, Lori, it scared me. I didn't, it felt so good. I had, I wasn't used to that. I was like, whoa, what is this feeling? And I ended up telling Rich, I said, I fasted and prayed about a month ago for, for help from God. And he gets in my face and says, this is your help. Mm -hmm. And it was just like this moment where, and then we sat there and in my head, I kept going, did this just happen? Did I really just get an answer to my fast and prayer? Wow. And I was, we were just blown away. When Diane Butterfield from episodes 79 and 80 shared her story of her two beautiful young daughters and their death in an auto accident, then 11 years later, her husband took his own life, and within the next year, so did her older son, we go to a place of such deep pain that hope seems a million miles away. For this sweet woman, under all this crushing loss, she has a moment when she realizes things will get better. I wanted to share this clip from our interview. She is just an amazing woman. I absolutely enjoyed my time so much talking with her. Um, and in this clip where we're picking it up, she is just coming home from a funeral. So where does the story go from here? Oh, How do you deal with that? Uh -huh. um, it was hard. Of course, because I didn't have all the skills I needed. I didn't have all the tools I needed, but they helped me know that I could keep going. I could keep breathing. I could find a way. And again, I had to make, I, there was a very specific point when I had to make 
another real decision. Am I going to be miserable and in pain every day of my life? You know, is that the way God intended my life to be? Because today, yes, today was miserable and horrible, and so was yesterday, and so was last week and last month. And if, if I kept doing that, then every year would be miserable and horrible. And I don't think God intended me to live a miserable, horrible life. And so it was six months after I lost my husband that Christmas was coming, and my children were all grown and gone and out of the home, and, and Cherry was gone, and I realized I'm going to wake up Christmas morning and there's nothing under the tree for me. There is no Santa Claus. Mm. Nothing's going to magically appear. And do I want Christmas Day to be a sad, difficult day full of grief? I mean, Christmas is truly a reason to celebrate. And I realized, so if there's no Santa Claus, I guess I'll just have to go get myself a present. So, so there was an ad in the paper and there was a sale at JCPenney for some, a ring. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to go get myself something amazing. So I, I was trying to be frugal, but, but, but anyway, there, I, I found a three stoned, um, simple, small diamond ring and I real, and I bought it for myself and wrapped it up and opened it Christmas morning because one stone represented my past. Mm. which had been so hard and so difficult. One represented my present. I can choose to have a happy Christmas. I can choose to have a happy life with effort. And then the one that hadn't occurred to me before was, I have a future. This isn't it. This isn't the end. So that Christmas, I just, it was set in stone. It was set in three little diamond stones. I think that's beautiful. Yeah, I did have a life ahead of me. Yeah. future. When we are trying to come out of the dark places, it's very important to remember that there is a future. This is what hope is. There is something better and different available moving forward. Um, and Diane, I think... Diane just sort of personified that with something so small, with a a little gift to herself that said, oh yeah, things don't always have to stay this way. Things will change, even when you can't see how. That's hope. C. Joy Bell said, quote, the sun shall always rise upon a new day, and there shall always be a rose garden with men in me. Yes, there's a part of me that is broken, but my broken soil gives way to my wild roses. I love this quote because it is so filled with hope. It is so filled with this idea that though life is messy, though things get broken, that beautiful things come from those broken places. And I I just want to really reiterate that if you are feeling broken, if you are in this healing space right now and things just... Oh, you're, you're feeling that hopelessness. I want to tell you that from my own personal experience and an exercise that I had a therapist do with me once, or maybe it was a workshop, but it was this idea of taking the hardest things that have happened to us and then going back 
or no, taking the best things that had happened to us and going back five steps into how those things came about. And inevitably, it was always something really difficult that had caused the decision or the choices or the opportunities to bring that really good thing into our life. So I I bear witness that though Though my soil may be broken, that it gives way to my wild roses. There are good, good things that can come from the things that we suffer. Now let's talk about the step of asking for help. Healing often requires that we get help, that we are actually brave enough and humble enough to ask for help when it's needed. In that clip from Todd Sylvester that we heard a bit back there, a man's story of asking God for help and the miracles that that brought around. That's a great example. In other interviews, in talking with people, asking for support sources for help has been just really prevalent as an important part of their healing. So let me share a couple more stories about that. In episode 140, Amanda Grow shares her story of severe childbirth complications and her experience of an extremely rare complication known as amniotic fluid embolism, which has a super high mortality rate, like 80%. In this episode, we hear about her rapid blood transfusion that nearly drained the hospital's blood supply and left her in a medically induced coma for a week. So as she tries to heal, she deals with many struggles, one of which is her mental and emotional struggle that she tells us about here. But the key for her is that she asks for help. So back to I'm starting to feel numb and I hit a couple of strange triggers that were so unexpected, but I read this article about a family and the mom had been, had twins that were in the NICU And she was killed by a drunk driver on her way home from visiting her twins. And she had four other children at home. And it's like awful, devastating story. But the article I read was like, it's been a couple of years now. And it was a showing how the family has healed. And the father had remarried to this beautiful person who was like giving the family so much space for the memory of their mother and was so respectful of her memory to the children. And she let, you know, this mother who was no longer living be a part of the children's lives. And I, I thought it was so beautiful. And I didn't even fathom at the time that that would be the worst possible thing I could have read because all of a sudden my mind took that and looked at all of my weaknesses, all of the ways that I didn't have as much energy as I used to, and all the ways that I just felt like I was falling short as a mom and as a wife and just like in my life in general, I just felt like this downer of a person compared to, you know, the superhero that I used to feel like I was. And all of a sudden, I'm just bombarded by these thoughts of it would be better if you had died. It would have been better for everyone if you had just died then and ripped the bandaid off fast for everyone. Don't and you think that that's the adversary though? That he's I, just looking for the first opportunity in which to keep pulling you down? I don't know what it was, but it was very real. And I think that because of that numbness, because of the beginnings of kind of mental illness and some imbalanced things, my mind grabbed into onto that thought and just absolutely became consumed with it. And 
I was taking caffeine pills to get through the day is kind of how I coped. So I would take two Excedrin in the morning, two Excedrin at noon. And then uh, sometimes I would take another Excedrin in the like kind of early, like later afternoon. And so that I was just functioning because I was like, I have to function. I have four kids. I've got to function. I've got to function. And I would get kind of this caffeine rush and just kind of buzz through the day, but feeling emotionally numb. And then by the end of the day, I would just absolutely emotionally fall apart. And so my husband, after, you know, it'd been about a couple of weeks of me just like crying every night. And when I told him, like, we have a really good open relationship. And when I told my husband, like, I have a lot of thoughts about wishing I had died. And I was like, I don't have any plans to die now, but I feel like I wish I had died. And he, at that point, reached out to my post-intensive care team. And first of all, they said, that it's really common for the holidays to be a trigger for women who have been through kind of a medical trauma, which I thought thought was really interesting. Uh, But they also said, this is post-intensive care syndrome. It's the mental, emotional, and sometimes physical crash that happens in a delayed way after someone's been in the ICU. And I am just so fortunate. Like I have the best case scenario of care. Like it, it still baffles me. They said that if I hadn't been at this hospital, I would never have survived physically because no other hospital in the state would have had enough blood on hand to save my life. But I feel the same way about my mental, emotional health too, because I had a place I could go. Most intensive care people have no aftercare. They're just dropped back into life. But we had a lifeline and They reached out to my doctors. My doctor brought me in, had this long conversation with me about how normal this is. She prescribed some medication to just help me kind of get through this emotional crash. And also I started seeing a counselor and little by little as the medication has started to kind of work and as I felt like I can I love the name of your podcast, Love Your Story. I feel like what therapy has done for me is allowed me to talk through my story and to try to understand. I think we as human beings like need our stories to line up. We need them to make sense. And, and so that is what therapy has been for me is a chance for me to sit down with a person who's whole job is to listen to me and help me make sense of my story. And and I love that. And so I'm in such a better place a couple months later. I mean, what are we, Mark? We're, you know, early spring now. And and my crash really happened around the, the holidays. I'm in such a better spot, but it's because I reached out desperately for help. And I have leaned into every possible type of healing and help that I can find because I want to get better. And I have four kids that while I can't be the perfect do-it-all mom, like I want to be able to at least mentally and emotionally be able to be there for them. Even if I can never physically be what I have the same level of energy, that's probably a good thing. We have much simpler lives now than we did before. One of the ways we can ask for help is through a professional. Trevor Lay, a trauma therapist, joined me in episode 213 to discuss how we heal from trauma. One of the supports that we have when we need to heal is the choice to reach out to a qualified therapist. And personally, I am a really big fan of therapy and therapists. I love having somebody that I can dump all my troubles and thoughts and ideas on and see how that shakes out. So I'm 
I'm a real fan of having somebody there that, that helps and supports. Here is a peek at how Trevor navigates the healing process. I'm going to take you to our, our interview. That's right. And a lot of people, a lot of people are, you know, they're really, when they hear that though, it's, it's really, it can be intimidating because it's like, well, wait a minute, in order for me to be happy, I have to go back and I have to talk about all this terrible stuff that happened to me. And I think that's another misconception, you know, that I think is important for us to discuss. So you don't go back and process the trauma to relive it. So like when I'm in therapy with people, I don't have them tell me all of the details so they can you know, reprocess their trauma. What, the reason we talk about the details is so we can figure out what all was in their environment at the time of the trauma so we can identify the triggers. The triggers are the key. We need to know what those triggers are. And without talking about and figuring out what all was, you know, so we, you know, I ask a lot of questions about, well, what was around you? Not, not what the person was necessarily doing exactly, but, you know, where were you? Uh, what day was it? Do you know? What time of year was it? What Were you in the city? Were you in the country? Were you, all those kind of things matter because those are giving, giving us ideas on where the triggers likely are. And a lot of times people find out they have triggers that they didn't even know about. And once they find out their triggers, it gives them a sense of power because now I have some control. I have some control on how I can respond to it versus when you don't, you know, when you just get really upset and cry or angry or scared and you don't know where it comes from, that's a really scary feeling because you feel like you're no longer in control of your own body. And that's what we want to give people back is we want to give people back control of themselves. So once you find these triggers, do you see a high level of success in people being able to overcome? Yes. Yeah. If when, when people identify those triggers and we and we you know, there's a lot of different ways to handle them. Um, you know, there's several different approaches, but I, I like to take a um, sort of a, a soft exposure approach. And what I mean by that is we're not going to take somebody and go throw them out in the middle of what they're scared to death of right away. But what we're going to do is we're going to take baby steps. We're going to take little bitty baby steps. Just, you know, the tortoise and the hare is one of the, sometimes I have people read that book. I mean, that sounds silly, but we really focus on that idea of, Hey, we're going to go about this really slow, really gradually. And what happens is, is when, let's say, for example, um, somebody is scared of a park because they had a bad encounter at a park or were abused and raped at a park. And now all of a sudden, any park, it's like, I can't go near it. Well, in the beginning, we may not have them go and go immediately and walk out in the park. What we would do is we might send them with somebody who they really feel safe with. And we might have them drive to the park and not even get out of their car. We might have them sit in the car and just talk to their friend while they're at that park and then leave. Maybe, maybe they go for 10 minutes and maybe the next time they go for 15 or 20, maybe the next time they get out and they just stand by the park for maybe five or 10 minutes. And that, that gradual process, what happens in the brain is the brain learns and realizes, Hey, I'm okay. I'm okay. This is not happening again. This happened in the past right now in the future. I'm safe. And the number one thing to start with uh, in any treatment with trauma is, is the feeling of safety. If, because the reason people are so, you know, hypervigilant is because their, their internal alarm system has been hijacked. Okay. Your internal alarm bells, which protect you, they're, they're the part of your, of your brain that is designed to identify threats 
and to escape or fight, right? Fight or flight to get out of it. And so that part of your brain has been overworked and kind of rewired a different way. And so now we want, we need to alter that. I was going to say, how do people know if they need help? But of course you're going to know if you need help, if you're not functioning well, right? There, um, there it is. You just said it. You just said it right there. The way you know you need help is when your daily life has been affected. Okay. So for example, what if I've been traumatized and I'm completely safe, happy in every environment, but I can't go to parks. Well, you know what, if I'm happy everywhere else and I'm, and I'm doing well everywhere else, I can, I can avoid a park. Right. But what happens when it's not just a park? What happens when it's, you know, walking down the street? What happens when it's going to the grocery store? What happens when it's going to a meeting or having to give a presentation or those kind of things? So now when it begins to impact your daily life and I'm no longer able to do the things that I need to do for myself that are good, I know that I need to address that. I think his point of feeling safe is also an important part of healing. You said that one of your favorite quotes is by Basil van der Kolk, MD. Did I say his name right? Yes. From the book, The Body Keeps Score. Quote, being able to feel safe with other people is probably the single most important aspect of mental health. Safe connections are fundamental to meaningful and satisfying lives. Unquote. Tell me what this means to you. Well, I mean, feeling safe and that sense of safety is really the absolute psychological foundation for what we do as we grow and we learn as people. Um, you know, it's like building a house. We, we build everything else on that. And when you don't have that, that safe foundation to, to build from, it leads to a lot of problems. And so um, it's just a critical, critical part of life. This next part of healing seems like a no-brainer, but in sorrow and loss, this one may be one of the hardest to muster. But I have heard it over and over in stories of healing. Look for the positive. Positive mental outlook makes all the difference. And I realize that, you know, sometimes that just sounds trite. Like when you're in the dark spaces, being positive is difficult. But let me share some of these stories and we'll see if this supports. In episode 65, Annadelle Lemon shares her story. At 15 years old, her father shot her mother and killed himself in a tragedy that certainly created a difficult story for Annadelle. Instead of letting her story hold her back, Annadelle, who calls herself the Freedom Warrior, she instead decided to use her experiences of overcoming negative emotional trauma to help other people see clearly their own potential and to do the same thing. Reframing with gratitude, reframing with perspective shifts. So here is one of her tips on healing. Look for the positive things. Take back your power by refusing to be a victim. Rewrite the story. Listen in. Well, it kind of goes along with your podcast, your Love Your Story podcast, and it's called Rewriting Your Story, or you know, you can call it Taking Back Your Power. I use both of those. But as you're rewriting your story of your childhood or around that experience or whatever it is, you look for everything in that story that was a positive situation. 
I had a client who had a bad marriage and I said, okay, every single day wasn't necessarily bad, was it? And she said, no, there were good times. So I had her write some of the good times, not ignoring the bad things, writing what was good, but also writing what did I learn? What did I learn from this situation? And the next part of that is taking back your power and not allowing someone else to keep your power. Because when we don't allow someone, or when, when we don't allow ourselves to step away from that and be our own person and not allow that to pull us down any longer, then we're taking back our power. In episode 168 with Michael O'Brien, he tells how on the morning of July 11, 2001, he was riding his bicycle on a New Mexico road when an SUV hit him head on going 40 miles an hour. This crushing accident left him nearly dead as the medevac helicopter descended to take his broken body to be pieced back together. Michael said that shifting into a positive mental attitude was absolutely crucial to his healing. And I thought it was really interesting that he also noticed it was crucial to all of those in the hospital who were actually getting better and moving forward. So here's a peek into his process and what that looked like for him. Then a mentor came to me and said, hey, Michael, all your events in your life are neutral until you label them. And at first, I didn't really understand what he meant. And then he went on further and shared, hey, nothing really has meaning in your life until you give it meaning. You can you can put your label and meaning on this whole accident, what happened. Because initially, like when I'm in victim mode, everyone came to my aid and said, yes, you are in victim mode. They, they almost validated it. And so there was some danger there that I would just stay there. There was sort of this choice that was being presented to me. And he came and he helped shine a light on a different option that instead of being defined by my accident, I could be defined by how I responded to it, that I could rise up and, you know, start working on what this came later with my big aha, my big shift that if I wanted to get my body right, I first had to get my mind right. And I had to get my thinking, I had to point my eyes in a different direction. And that was so critical to helping me like understand like, okay, I have some choice in this. And that slowly but surely the, the clouds started to part and I could see some clarity and some sun shining. And I took my first steps more figuratively than literally because I was still in my wheelchair and I was still hospitalized. But I was like, okay, well, today I'm going to start showing up different. I'm going to get my mind right so I can heal my body. And I can make more of a connection with the people I wanted to make a connection with. I wanted to change my energy. Because I knew enough about energy back in the day where it was like, all right, the energy is rippling. If I put out better energy, it could come back to me and that could help me get just a little bit better tomorrow than I am today. And here he notices that part about who is healing and shares a little of how he starts his own shift into being more positive. Let me read the little bit out of your book where you said this. You said, quote, I assessed who was making progress and who was stuck. For those who were making progress, what were they doing differently? What I observed astounded me. The thing that these patients seemed to have in common was an optimistic mindset. They believed they were getting better. 
this belief gave them the energy and momentum to keep moving forward. They had a different perspective. They not only celebrated when things went well, but they also took their setbacks in stride. It felt like a gigantic light bulb suddenly switched on in my mind. It was a moment of total consciousness. This was my shift and nothing would be the same again, unquote. So when you woke up that next morning and you decided to go with this shift, what was your new ritual? Well, I got out of my wheelchair. I scooted myself out of bed, out of my wheelchair, and I tried to find a very quiet place in the hospital, which is not easy to do. Because I knew this, Lori, that I had to get my mind quiet because I had a whole bunch of stuff in my mind, a whole bunch of clutter, a lot of different narratives. And so I wheeled myself to that quiet place and I just sat in silence. It sort of became the beginning of a meditation practice. And I didn't know back then anything about meditation or mindfulness. I, but I thought I was like, well, that's what crunchy granola people do. I'm like, I'm a corporate guy. I'm not going to do any of that. But I sat focused in on my breath, got quiet, and really set my intentions for the day. How did I want to show up for my rehab, for the visitors, my wife who came each day, actually twice a day. And that was the beginning. And then I worked on my mind and body connection to the degree I could do some exercises in my wheelchair I did, mainly with upper body. And then eventually, you know, I turned on my music uh, Depeche Mode's Violator CD was the soundtrack of my recovery. I probably outplayed that a thousand different times. But that was all like part of my ritual to get going in the day. That helped me start that new day off on the right foot. But something happened later that day. I went to the orthopedic surgeon and he was going to give me clearance to put weight on both legs. So I thought it was going to be a great day. I thought oh, the timing was perfect. Like this new ritual, this new attitude. I'm going to go to the doctor. He's going to say, clean bill of health. You can start walking again. I'd be that much closer to getting out of the hospital. And then he shared with me, You're not, your body's not ready yet. And I was devastated. It was definitely like one of those hits. I fell back down again. But the next day I realized, okay, that's a moment. Don't give it any more fuel than it deserves. Don't have it last any longer than it needs to. And then the next morning I began that ritual again. And so this process of mine is sort of still going on. It's, you know, it's part of the journey I am on is to live life with more intentionality, more purpose, more connection. And so I still have a bad moment from time to time, but I'm determined that I want to cherish each day and put my energy towards it to create a better tomorrow and really treat it as the gift it is, you know, now that I have sort of a second chance on life, if you will. In episode 166, my interview with Braxton Nelson, who on August 31st, 2017, was crushed and paralyzed by a bucking bronco in a rodeo in, in Idaho. Growing up, his dad has, had always told him that he was born to succeed. Those comments created a mindset that would absolutely serve Braxton as he faced a broken back. Here's a bit of his story. So it was about the, uh, after they got my blood pressure and stuff under control, they, you know, but they, uh, they gave me less medication <laughs> where I was able to come to. And this is where I'm so grateful for my dad being positive is I remember the first, like the first memory where I, I, I came out of the anesthesia and stuff. And I remember thinking, what, okay, what's going on? I, I remember I was in the hospital bed. Uh, I was laying there and I 
went to sit up and I had a neck brace on. I had, you know, a back brace deal thing on. I remember thinking, okay, I'll just lift my legs up and rock up and, you know, sit up. And as I went to lift my legs to rock myself up, they didn't move. And I started to panic a little more. And I, I, I remember reaching down and kind of grabbing my knees and then trying to feel it. And like my hands get through my legs, but my legs, I, I, it was just a feeling I've never felt before. And I started panicking and I thought, okay, what happened in the hospital? Oh yeah, I was at the rodeo. I broke my back. Um, when I broke my back, this thought went to my head where maybe I had a blood clot and the doctors had to cut my legs off. That's why I can't feel them. And so I started panicking and yelling for my dad. And my dad came over the top of me in this hospital bed. And he said, hey, son, it's about time you wake up from your nap. And I'm being like, dad, listen, don't joke with me. Like, just be straight honest with me, dad. Uh, did the doctors cut my legs off? And my dad looked at my legs and he looked in my eyes and he looked at my legs and looked back in my eyes and he said, Brax, yeah, uh, the doctors cut your legs off. <laughs> I started, I did. I started crying, you know, thinking, holy flip, the doctors cut my legs off. This can't be happening. And my mom slapped my dad on the chest. And you know, when my dad's in trouble, my dad's name's Rick. And my mom will only say Richard if my dad's in trouble. So, you know, she was like, Richard, hit him on the chest. <laughs> And this, then my dad, you know, he, as I'm sitting there crying, my mom's sitting there. My dad's kind of chuckling me. He says, Brax, hey, no, your legs are there. They're both there, buddy. You're fine. He said, Brax, look, he started pointing out of the positive things. He, he said, Brax, you got two arms that are moving, son. You have eyes that can see. You have a mouth that's speaking. You're sitting here. And then he, yeah, I remember he putting his hand on my hand and put it on my chest, uh, and he said, you feel that, son? You have a heart that's still beating. And the same thing he's always told me from when I was a little kid to this situation in life. He said, Brack, things are going to be different. But you're, you can still be the very best. And you can, you know you're born to succeed like he did. But he kept saying, you're, you still can be the very best. And, and that's with anything in life. I'm so grateful for my dad being able to point out the positive things. You know, in circumstances we can't control. I, I live by this 10% circumstance. 90% attitude. 10% circumstance, you're not going to be able to control. You can't control what's going to come out of someone's mouth sometimes. You're not going to be able to control what your boss is going to say or, or life circumstances that happen and hit you. Like, you know, I couldn't control bareback horse flipped over and I'm paralyzed. But what we can control every single day is 90% attitude. And that's what my dad taught me. And, and being the very best, you have to have that 90% attitude. Be able to focus on the things that you can control, the things that you have. Don't worry about wasting time on controlling things you can't control. Okay, let's talk about finding meaningful lessons. If we hop back to Ijoma, to her second point, you must allow it to teach you. Every struggle has a gift for you in its hands. I'm sure you guys have heard that said before. Now, I want to point out that sometimes it takes a while to find that gift, but it is always there. This is also the fulcrum for a good reframe of a story. This is the gold in the dross. Even Albert Einstein said, quote, in the middle of every difficulty lies opportunity, unquote. So here is Michael O'Brien again. Back before my accident, the whole concept of like the universe or God or whoever putting things in our life as lessons. I was like, I'm too busy for that. Like I got stuff to do. I got ladders to climb and things to buy. And in a lot of ways, like my accident, I believe 
like the universe, God, whomever sent me messages. And I just blew past them because I wasn't living life with much awareness. And they're like, hey, Michael, you keep on ignoring us. We're going to give you one message you cannot ignore. And hey, voila, the Ford Explorer comes into my life. And then you fast forward to that doctor's appointment. And I'm like, oh, man, that universe, man, that is they're they're tricky. You know, like they got a they got a sick sense of humor. Uh, thanks like, a lot. All, yeah, thanks a lot. Like I'm already, I'm all optimistic. I got this all this going on. And I go to him and he's like, Nope. And I'm like, dang, this is hard. And yeah, you know, putting forth because at that moment in time, that's not physical labor, that's emotional labor. And totally emotional labor is hard stuff. But if we want to create the lives we want to create, have the careers that we want make a difference in other people it's all emotional labor and that was some of the most beautiful lessons i've learned along the way and i'm still learning them today that you know because now i get to now i get to see them when they pop up i can be quick to process and digest the lesson and hopefully apply it that yeah the universe god whomever they act in mysterious ways that are probably not so mysterious they put things in our lives so we can learn the lessons from them and apply them to make, a, make an impact that's meaningful in today's society. A Chinese proverb says, the gym cannot be polished without friction, nor man perfected without trials. I dare say that sometimes the things we learn are the reason for an experience. So focus on that new knowledge, on what you have gained in order to heal and find hope. That's also the space where we shift. Like I said, the the reframe of the story is not focusing on the victimhood, not focusing on the things that were done to us, but focusing on the things that we learned, the meaning that we gained, the understanding. The next part of healing is often around the process of accepting your story. You know, even coming to a place where you can share your story without shame. Here on the show, we call it Love Your Story. This was a crucial step for my own healing, as many of you longtime listeners know. A really big part of letting go of all the disappointment and the feelings of failure came from accepting my story completely for all it was and then reframing my personal interpretation of it, which is always a big deal because we control that, so that I was looking at the meaning and the growth rather than the perceived failures and the pains. In episode 227, titled Blooming, my um, talk with Carrington Smith, she tells her story and how she came to bloom through the struggle. One of her highlights was the life lesson that you need to claim and tell your story in order to heal. So here's what she has to say about it. I was raped in college and was told by my sorority sister to keep it a secret because uh, another sorority sister a few years before had uh, been raped. And when she volunteered that story, she was kicked out and labeled a slut. And so it was, that was just the environment that we were in back then. So when I finally, I was really depressed because I wasn't talking about it, wasn't dealing with it. And so when I finally got home, I confided in my mother. I mean, I was just a mess. I'd been calling home saying I wanted to kill myself. And well, let me just interject here. I think for the story, it's really important to understand how traumatic it it was to you. Like you had started sleeping in and not going to class. And I mean, it really was a full on 
trauma of dealing with what had happened to you and not finding any support with your sorority sisters and having people, you know, not believe you. And, and I mean, it it was really at a DEFCON five sort of situation and you approach your mother at this point. Yeah. I approached my mother who ironically, uh, had been, had served as the executive director of the crisis pregnancy center, uh, which is the anti-abortion sort of version of Planned Parenthood where they would counsel people who have been raped about what their options were. And so here I share this with my mother and her response to me is she stood up, got red in the face, was extremely angry and said, we are, so, I am so disappointed in you. We had hoped that you would remain a virgin until you were married. And you are never to speak of this and you're never to tell your father. I can't even imagine how devastated you must have been. Oh, yeah. I mean, I felt so worthless. And, and you know, I, I, I mean, I knew she was right about telling my father. That was for certain. But I'd really hoped that she would be there to support me and counsel me through this. And so I just felt abandoned. Well, absolutely, because everyone yeah. else you had turned to that would possibly be a support, all your closest people had said the same thing. Right. Yeah. So it wasn't, so I didn't speak of it and I didn't talk about it to anyone for six years. And this is a one of those great life lessons. And that is I did learn very personally that when you say that you're, you don't want something to define you and that to you means that you don't talk about it. And you know, because you don't want to experience the shame of saying something happened to you that you're you know, embarrassed about, it's the most detrimental thing possible because you that trauma just festers and you end up, it ends up showing up in your behaviors in other ways. And it wasn't until I did start talking about it and dealing with it and getting therapy that I began to heal. And how long did that take? Well, I mean, initially, you know, six years was the first time I ever spoke of it, but it took a number of years of getting therapy. And even after getting therapy, still kind of, I mean, I have to give some credit here to Brene Brown because it's her thing about owning your story and understanding that, wow, if I actually finally speak up and own my story and claim this as part of me and see that it is part of the fabric of who I am. And actually some good things came of this. And that is when you are tried, I mean, if you think about, you know, iron, the the hotter stuff gets, the stronger you become. And so because I had survived this, I had this incredible emotional resilience and that in turn bred a quiet confidence Carrington went from the rejection of her story when she tried to find support to learning how harmful it is to keep that bottled up to ultimately learning to give voice to her story and to claim the part that it played in her life and to claim the strength it gave her as she realized how strong she was. Let's go back to Ijoma's third step. You must not allow it to overstay. Another way of saying this is we have to be willing to let go as we are trying to heal. In episode 219, Come Off Conqueror with Bonnie Randall, she's the creator of Come Off Conqueror, a group for helping women who have experiences with sexual abuse. 
we discuss the importance of being open to healing and being willing to let go of the hurt and how you've let it define you. Take a listen to her thoughts. There gets to be a point where you have to be willing to let go and step out of that bog. You have to be willing to grab that hand that's willing to help you and move on. And I know so true. that that can be really hard. You know, it can be really, really difficult to let go of that hurt because you've had it for so long. That's what feels normal. And you're, you can be scared about what the future means. And there's a lot of just <laughs> in itself healing. I've met a lot of people who weren't ready to heal yet because they didn't want to face it. Right. They didn't want to relive the trauma. They don't want to speak to their earlier self. Right. Like if they were a victim as a child, maybe they don't want to go back there. Right. And I understand that it's hard. It's hard to relive that, but it doesn't have to be a um, long drawn out process. You don't have to sit there in that pain, right? I uh, That episode that you just sent me um, about uh, anger, right? And accepting, acknowledging the emotions that you're feeling, giving them gratitude, giving them a space, and then releasing them is key. I think another thing that people sometimes get stuck in is when they have lived with something for a long time, it becomes a part of them and they don't know how to function without either the anger or the bitterness or the self-definition they have let that event give to them. Mm -hmm. And that has to be something that you're willing to let go of and explore yourself without that as a defining factor. I 100% agree. Who am I? (laughs) Without that. This, right? Like Mm -hmm. who does that mean that I am? And In my mind, that means that you are a clear, beautiful, happy, energetic person who is open to happiness. And when you accept that happiness and you accept that peace, you will find so much joy in your life. Letting go is often much easier said than done. but it becomes crucial if you want to heal, crucial if you want to raise your energy level, crucial if you don't want to be stuck. None of us do, right? In episode 172, I speak with Dana Kazik. She was born and raised in Sarajevo in Bosnia, and she was caught in the middle of the Bosnian conflict. She was shot as a teenager during that war, and she says that the saddest thing she sees is how so many of her people play the victim role. She still sees it in Bosnia. In fact, she left Bosnia because it was just so overwhelming and dark with all the people who can't let go of the wrongs that were done to them. So listen to her story and her thoughts about the importance of letting go. Well, I think everything goes back to how important it is to be kind to yourself and learning to love yourself and to to follow your intuition and follow your dreams and uh, also not to live in the past like we can link it to the war. I told you the main reason why I decided to leave Bosnia, even though I am very close to my parents and my sister who still lives there, but it's just the people and the mentality. 25 years later, 
if you watch the news, if you talk to people, all the politicians, it's all about the war and they're still living in the past. And for me, it's about the present and creating the future and try to surround yourself with positive people, people who are creating and working towards something better. So that was, that was the biggest takeaway that I wanted to share. least maybe the hardest step of all. Let's look at forgiveness. Marianne Williamson said, quote, the practice of forgiveness is our most important contribution to the healing of the world, unquote. And Dr. Sidney Simon provided an excellent definition of forgiveness as it applies to human relationships. So let me share that as well. He said, Forgiveness is freeing up and putting to better use the energy once consumed by holding grudges, harboring resentments, and nursing unhealed wounds. It is rediscovering the strengths we always had and reallocating our limitless capacity to understand and accept other people and ourselves. Unquote. This here is a discussion on how forgiveness can help release anger how it can help release resentment and pain, and why it's important to forgive both ourselves and others. And I know it is so easy to talk about forgiveness when really it can be incredibly difficult to do. In episode 51, I talk with Bethany Wallace, who after a rape, an alcoholic father and an alcoholic husband, she goes to a 12-step program looking for healing. She shares how the 12-step program helps her to process her feelings, which is a major step in being able to forgive for her. Do you have final thoughts about this idea of the various paths that people take to find their healing? And, you know, one of the things you said to me when we were talking earlier was how your 12-step program had helped you forgive. And I thought that was interesting. I don't know, not having ever been involved in a 12-step program, I, you know, don't, don't know what that involves, but there were many things for you to forgive. And I feel like it, forgiving is often so difficult. So how did the 12-step program help you forgive? And what are your final thoughts that you would like to leave with people? You know, that's one thing that I think is people don't expect also about 12-step programs. I mentioned that I didn't expect it to deepen my relationship with God. And another thing I really didn't expect was that it would also help me heal from things that have nothing to do with alcoholism. And some of those things were related to sexual assault and PTSD. And like I mentioned, I had been to counseling, which is great. And it was helpful too in that respect. But the steps will take you through a obviously step-by-step process of healing through looking at each person that has harmed you or whom you have harmed and looking at, you know, do I, is this a place when I need to forgive or I need to make amends? And when you take your time through that and talk to your sponsor or someone you trust and then move on to other steps when you'll take action on that, then it really is powerful and and life-changing because a lot of us, and, and when we're not in the program and, you know, 
I know what, what it was like for me before I was in the program is I just harbored all of that. A lot of unforgiveness and resentment and hurt feelings, anger, bitterness, you know, or I just tried to bury it. And what I've learned about burying feelings is that they're still living. So when you bury something that's alive, that doesn't work very well. For me, it always comes back to bite me or haunt me or digs its way out or it pushes sure. itself out in my life in an ugly way somehow. There's a book called Feelings Buried Alive Never Die. And it's actually a really powerful transformative book, but it talks about how when you bury those feelings that it can actually come out in physical maladies that you have, you know, your, your body will manifest those things. So what I hear you saying is that the 12 step program helps you to process those feelings and in processing makes it easier to forgive. Absolutely. And also, I think it's changed my perception of that process of forgiveness and making amends has helped me see other people as the same as I am. You know, even the man who raped me, I see him. I used to, one book that I read when I was in counseling talked about, you know, if you were faced with that, you have two buttons in front of you and you push one and that person goes to heaven and you push the other and he goes to hell, which one would you push? And I like laughed like cynically when I was talking to my counselor, I was like, well, what do you think? But it's funny because after reading that book and then having kind of a epiphany about that, but also probably more through the program and not through counseling, I came to see that rapist as just a person who is very broken, has been molested himself and is a very sick individual, but is ultimately a child of God. So, you know, if I were faced with that same situation of two buttons and I had to choose, I'd probably just walk away because I don't want anything to do with that. And that's a huge change for me and a huge shift in my where I am spiritually today, you know, and to be able to pray for someone like that genuinely and just say to God, like, please give him whatever he needs. I have no idea what he needs rather than, oh my gosh, please punish him. And uh. Kristen Yee, second counselor in the Relief Society General Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She gave a talk um, last year called Beauty for Ashes, The Healing Path to Forgiveness. Now, in her talk, she acknowledges growing up in a home where her father was mentally abusive and how it has taken her years to forgive. She says, quote, as my love for the Savior has grown, so has my desire to replace hurt and anger with his healing balm. It has been a process of many years requiring courage, vulnerability, perseverance, and learning to trust in the Savior's divine power to save and heal. I still have work to do, but my heart is no longer on a warpath. I have been given a new heart, one that has felt the deep and abiding love of a personal Savior who stayed beside me, who gently and patiently led me to a better place, who wept with me, who knew my sorrow." She then quotes President and Prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Russell M. Nelson, who said, quote, "...through His infinite atonement, you can forgive those who have hurt you and who may never accept responsibility for their cruelty to you. It is usually easy to forgive one who sincerely and humbly seeks your forgiveness, but the Savior will grant you the ability to forgive anyone who has mistreated you in any way." 
then their hurtful acts can no longer canker your soul. Unquote. Let me mention here that you have to be open to and want to forgive. I have an acquaintance, we'll call her Samantha, who had an abusive husband who cheated on her and actually gave her a venereal disease. She's been separated from him now for 10 years, but every time we see her, she is still talking about him, blaming him for the state of her life, holding on to her sorrow for all she's worth. She is deeply mired and holding on to the pain, and it has not served her. She has lived a small and often dark life because she's let so much of this define her instead of seeking for that forgiveness, which comes back to the we have to be open to it, even though it may be hard, even though it may be a process. Sometimes it's a very long process. In my own life, I have found that forgiveness is not an instantaneous thing. Even if I want to forgive, it's not instantaneous. Emotions around hurt, they're not simple for me. or I, I doubt they're simple for any of us. It's often about praying for help and allowing for time. I also take a look at how I can shift my thoughts about it so I create different emotions that can help me forgive. Let me just share this experience. I had a dear friend who gosh, just really stabbed me in the back with completely unwarranted and untrue rumors. It was very unexpected. She was someone that I trusted, and she just made up stories and then um, passed them on for her own reasons and self-aggrandizement, and they, they just had no basis in reality. And this has not been easy for me to let go of because it was unexpected. And it's also very unlike her. So as I've struggled with it, I've considered, you know, what what do I do? Do I focus on the fact that she created some false stories out of her own difficult life space? And I try to find grace for her rather than my first feelings that are really of betrayal and disbelief. I've chosen that route as I've worked on the forgiveness because... By small things, we can accomplish big things. One thought shift at a time, one prayer for help, one day of hoping for better and knowing it will come. That's how we make progress. And in this case, if I can give her a little bit of grace, if I can say this is unusual, um, she created false stories because she was in a difficult place. Um, you know, it's just that, it's just that find that little bit of grace for her and focus on that instead of my own personal hurt. And that moves me forward on that step of being able to let go of it on that, that path of releasing and finding forgiveness. Thank you for being here today. Whatever your path to healing, you can do it. Lewis L. Hayes said, quote, You have the power to heal your life, and you need to know that. We think so often that we are helpless, but we are not. We always have the power of our minds. Claim and consciously use your power. Unquote. Ah, what a great quote to end on. <laughs> Thank you for being here. If you're in the process of healing, I hope you found something in this episode that turned on a light for you, something that felt like support, something that you can hang on to. 
something you can use. If you know of someone who is on the path of healing right now, please share this episode with them. Share the love. It's super easy. Just hit share episode and text it to them. Get it out there. My prayers and best wishes to you as you traverse your roads. Understand you are not alone in the world of healing. We are all on and off this path. It's something we all have to learn how to do. I'll see you in two weeks. Bye.